Welcome to Sweden in Transition, the podcast that meets change makers in Sweden. In a world in need of urgent reinvention, they do or see things differently. I am Sonia Lehmann and today I meet Seper Musavi. Seper is one of the co-founders of Sweet Green, a vertical farming provider. How do we address population growth and urbanization? Can we promote biodiversity and reduce risks related to climate change? Can tech be used for good? Could food grown in a controlled environment be more tasty, richer in nutrients and truly sustainable? We discussed all that and went through the incredible synergies that the pilot farm here in central Stockholm has managed to leverage to be fully circular. Actually, this discussion took us much further than that. From the reinvention of our food system to the necessary mind shift that we, as humans, need to go through collectively, moving away from this win-lose logic that leads to inequalities and environmental disaster. Hi, Sepper. Welcome. Hi, Sonia. Thank you for the invitation. In the intro of this podcast, I say in a world in need of urgent reinvention, To your mind, what do we need to reinvent in our human societies? We are in a very sensitive phase in our history, I guess. I think the biggest change that we need to face is to reevaluate different values we started to shape our societies. Rather have a shift of mindset and have a more like holistic systemic thinking approach to things and how we set values, maybe not based on the old values that we brought to ourselves, like from this materialistic financial systems, but also like to add some other values to our system to, to create a paradigm shift for a better future. So on which values should we build our new paradigm? When we are thinking about the way that we created our systems, many different things like the influence of like our action, our ecosystem, for example, hasn't been that much included because, I mean, we took the, the good things in life that come for free as like, you know, given things and we never appreciated them. But now that we are seeing that our planet is changing very fast and uh, the different ecosystem services that were offered to us in a very easy way are depleting and becoming less available for us. So focusing on them would be very interesting and nice. Mm. Before we talk about urban farming, please introduce yourself and tell us how you came to work on those topics. Sure. My name is Sepper, as you mentioned, and one of the co-founders of a vertical farming initiative based in Stockholm, Sweet Green. We are focusing on an innovation around an AI-driven and controlled environment and automated vertical farming solution that makes our customers able to produce food on a hyper-local level of higher quality and better taste and in a more sustainable setting. My role within the company is I am in charge of the innovation and R&D portfolio. I'm coming from a family that owned a lot of agricultural land. And when I was like seeing their life and like how difficult agriculture is, how dependent it is on the external factors of, you know, lack of rain, droughts, insects, many, many different things that could have like an influence on them. I always were thinking about how you could make the life of these people easier and how you could make agriculture like more automated and easier for the people operating in it. So my my story started with that. I started with public relations and then agricultural engineering, but I shifted towards the uh, the business side. But around 10 years ago, I started, or a bit more than 10, 10 years ago, I started to get a feeling about like that you should do something more meaningful 
with your life, you know, finding a mission, a vision, something like that could help you with a more meaningful value to the actions that you have rather than those fancy business card or like a better salary and so on. Something that could make the world better, like for the, for the future generations. And that was the time that I decided that I should quit a very uh, fancy job and come to Sweden and go back to school to learn about more about like sustainability and green tech and green technologies. And then a new chapter of my life basically started then. Because you were not in Sweden back then. No, I'm basically, I'm Iranian. So I was born there, but I have experience of living in different countries. So Sweden is more or less like the seventh or the eighth country that I'm... Um, International citizen. Something like that. <laughs> so now moving on to food. Food is a major sector when we talk about sustainability and transition. For you, what are the main challenges that the food system is facing now? If you go back on a holistic level, you see like almost 30% of our global carbon footprint comes from the food sector and everything that is associated with that. And it's one of the less criticized ones. And if you compare it like to like travel industry, for example, but the complexity of food system and the globality of that and the different types of actor in that sector makes it very complicated. So it's a very tough nut to crack, I guess. So urban and vertical farming. How does it answer this equation? So when you look at the different trends for population growth, which has been really sharp. So during the past like 120, 30 years, the population of this planet has went up more than seven times. And it's continuing to a point like in the future that we're going to have 10 billion people. That one intertwined with the urbanization trends that we have. And the interesting thing is agriculture was always associated with rural activities that on the countryside, you produce the food and then you send it to different cities or like different countries and so on. But that part of our society is becoming like smaller and smaller. And then also the resources that you have for agriculture, like all the different like freshwater resources that you need. More than 80% of our water consumption in the world is irrigation and agriculture. The pollutions that are associated with that, fertility of the soil, biodiversity of this planet, you know, higher temperature and climate change. All of these different things makes us start thinking that we need to have a better and more sustainable and a climate smart agriculture, something that could be resilient for the future to feed the future generations. And that's how innovations like vertical farming pop. And I mean, I'm not saying like we're going to have only urban systems like feeding the planet, but there are many different changes that are coming in the food sector, like from, from the farm to the fork. It's one of the solution. You're not saying that's the one. What do you think about agroecology, for example? Mm. Yeah, of course. You don't have any single silver bullet to kill this question. And this is like very much like the same thing with other industries on mobility, for example. Could you say like, oh, the, the electrical scooters are going to be the future? Or no, the electric cars are going to be the future. Yeah, of course, Like, but they're a part of the future. And that's the very same thing with uh, vertical farming as well. I mean, uh, glad that you talked about agroecology because that was the master program that I've done at Swedish University of Agriculture to start understanding the connections between agriculture and the ecosystems. And then another program in industrial ecology at Royal Institute of Technology to see like 
how technology could come down and help this industrial ecosystem buildings. So if you look at different like systems with interactions, then we could find how you could integrate them or like create symbiosis between different parts. And this could be in a very low tech system as the way that our planet created its system is sustaining the way that it's working, or it could be more high tech as we are doing it in a smart city projects, for example. Vertical farming, what problem it addressed concretely? So think like that. You have an urban population that needs to be fed. Here in Sweden, where do we get our leafy greens and nutrition herbs? Other like most of them are imported. Some of them are produced in the uh, kind of like controlled environment agriculture units called greenhouses in suburban or rural areas in Sweden, Denmark, other places. And then many of them are imported from south of Europe and also like North Africa to us. So if we want to bring agriculture on board to the urban societies and make it closer to us, then it can't be in the normal agriculture system because land is so expensive and scarce. In cities that you need to create a more space efficient system to have the minimal footprint of a space or use your unused spaces for farming. And that's where the verticality of that comes to place. So instead of doing that in a normal horizontal way of doing in a thousand square meters, for example, then you do that in hundred square meters, but in 10 layers. So you always add to that. And the productivity of those systems could be also quite changed because the optimal climate that you could create for those plants that don't connect to the external factors, then you see that, for example, the latest system that we delivered to our customers as retail stores produces 400 times more efficient of traditional farming per square meter of footprint. We have the image of an indoor farm with no soil, artificial lightning. Mm -hmm. It means that it requires a lot of energy, right? Yes. And how do you make that sustainable then? Mm -hmm. The thing is like that. When you look at controlled environment agriculture and optimizing in sense of mimicking an optimal nature, like this ecosystem services that our planet offers for agriculture. So a plant needs optimal climate system, temperature, humidity, CO2 level and airflow and, and so on. Then you focus on irrigation system, the different nutrients that you could resolve in water and provide for your plants. You need soil basically for the roots to sit in and like take up these nutrients, but the nutrients don't come from the soil itself. It's rather like the roots to sit in, in, in that substrate. And then you have like other needs for the sunshine, for example. But the spectrum that the plants need is not the total equivalent of like sunlight that we get. So you could mimic the part that you want. And the number of hours of lighting to basically capitalize the maximum potential of a plant is something close to 16 hours, which, for example, we don't have it during the winter here or not even like during the summer. So you create an environment that is mimicked of this perfect heaven for your plants. And many of those resources you could create like a circular system for. So no nutrients leaving your place, no pollution, the water you could recycle it. I mean, our water recycling is more than 99.9%. So instead of 250 liters of water, you only need like 1.5. The biggest weak point of vertical farming is exactly what you put your, your finger on. 
the the leds that we are using and the artificial lighting because even if like the led technology has been developed quite a lot and it's efficient still there is a lot of heat that is generated some part of that is needed for bringing our climate to an optimized level especially during the colder month and in a cold country like sweden so we could use it like that the next part would be like how do you capture that surplus heat and the wasted energy and use it somewhere else. So these are like how a smartness comes to place and system building comes to place. So for us, instead of letting that energy go, which many greenhouses do, and even like many vertical farming initiatives do, we try to harness that and use it in some other sense. What I read between the lines is that this model is particularly relevant here in Sweden, where you have a low local production of food. So this solution makes a lot of sense here and, and wouldn't probably make so much sense in another country. And the other reason for that is the energy mix of Sweden, mostly based on renewable energies, mm -hmm. which makes it sustainable. Of course, like renewable energy is one very relevant point. But then when you look at the main question, you could, I could turn your question and say like, okay, anyways, in no city, you, you don't have a system for those freshly producers that we need to consume like super fresh. Because if you're talking about rice, for example, I mean, you could put rice in a cupboard for month. And it's going to be fresh. Nothing is like changed or like an apple could be fresh, like for weeks. I mean, an average age of an apple in a European supermarket is more than a year. So that, you know, so they're sometimes keeping it like from the last summer and they sell it like the next summer or after the next summer. But when it comes like, to but then the nutrients. But the drop of like nutrients is like, you know, the proverb, uh, one apple a day keeps the doctor away. You need to rethink that. So, <laughs> yeah, one of the problems of our food system today course, is that it's it's empty of nutrients. And it's like totally not transparent about that. So, I mean, fresh vegetables, you never have like a date for them. When are they produced? Where are they produced? You have like some, oh, this is like packaged in Holland. Okay, but where does that come from? You never know. When was that picked? You never know. Like, how was it grown? You never know. So when you talk about urban food system, it's bringing that transparency to the picture. And for now, I guess vertical farming is most like adjusted for producing the food that needs to be consumed the freshest. Leafy green, herbs that have like so much higher nutrition when they're closer to you and producing those settings. So still, there is a lot of relevance for those products, even in places that you have like higher food security level. But then think about like other kind of countries that have issues with water scarcity, tougher climates, being in a desert area, like think about Middle East and West Asia. Talk about like places that have like higher density and no possibility for farming, like, you know, Far East, Hong Kong, Singapore, you know, places like that. And then creation of these hubs makes like something that is unavailable for people quite easy here like connection of the energy system is totally relevant but the question of vertical farming i guess stands like valid in in many other contexts mm. as well you just need to redefine the integration and the smartness of a system in another sense but you know like heat is energy and energy could be used for something else it could be even used for cooling if you have like warmer climates 
Yes, so I know you're doing a lot of synergies here in, mm -hmm. in this pilot farm. So how does it work? So we created this farm as a pilot for advanced climate control production in a totally circular system. And a part of that circular system then became the energy integration of a farm to a building. So we have a farm on floor minus three of the Duggins Nihater Tower, which used to be the, the tallest building in Stockholm. On floor minus three, they had an old newspaper archive room that got digitalized and was empty. And we were able to turn it to a farm. So instead of like an, a storage room or something or a parking down there, it became a farm. This is so integrated to this building. So all of the surplus heat, like water-cooled LEDs, or even like the CO2 from the people. So you're sitting here and breathing out CO2, and that CO2 is taken, filtered, and sent to our plants in the basement to do photosynthesis. So this is like an, a smart symbiosis between this tower and, and the farm. I visited the farm, uh, yes. and I was really impressed was making uh, the parallel with Northvolt and they decided to build their gigafactory in the north of Sweden because they had 100% renewable energy access and they need a lot of energy. <laughs> I was wondering if that could be a, a way to plan the expansion of vertical farm. We need to be close to people, people who are more interested in premium quality and sustainable quality and interested of technology are good customers for vertical farming. I understand your point with Northvolt, but the thing is like they have a produce that they could send out to the world we don't want to export food we want to like produce it where it's consumed we want it to be as close to the consumers they don't need to think like that they're not working with the living and uh, fresh product okay going back to the business model of sweet yeah. green you have many stakeholders yeah. that you're working with so who is your client who is your consumer how does it work Okay, so to begin with, when we started with this farm under this building, our idea was that we could create many farms like this one in different parts of first Stockholm and then go like to other cities and other countries and like drive them like that in, in farming units. But for us, we started to realize like, okay, the first thing is we have the capacity, the knowledge and intelligence of being smarter and do it in even like a smaller like grids and closer to the consumers so that we don't need to do even like that last mile transportation. And the other thing would be we get rid of all the necessary logistics. So artificial intelligence and automation could like come closer and then you could do it like hyper locally inside a retail store a restaurant or a shopping mall. And our business model shifted from farmers to a tech provider company that sells its services in a setting that we call it farming as a service. So basically it means that a retail store, for example, comes to us and explains to us like how much of different greens or salads they sell like per day. We do a reverse engineer calculation for them. You need this farm size of this to be totally self-sufficient and they receive a uh, subscription fee for that. So they don't own any infrastructure. They don't have any problem with maintenance. So if we have like a certain time of contract, we guarantee that everything happens that they wish. And we promise that the guarantee of the quality every day, exactly as they want with different varieties of the plants that they want. And this is, makes it like so much easier for our customers to jump on board. So what we are selling is rather like a Netflix for, for farming. 
And then there are like different types of technologies that we are using from Internet of Things and sensors to vision diagnostics and image recognition and so on. So it's like matching of all of those different technologies together to create a knowledge by help of machine learning, which becomes an intelligence from the machine being fed to, to an operator in a later stage. So if you're an e-class store in Lean Shopping that owns a farm of us, you have your iPad and you receive a to-do list, basically. So everything like is easily managed and user-friendly. And uh, as I understood during my visit in this building, there was an opportunity to sell it as a service to other buildings that are not necessarily supermarkets, mm -hmm. uh, right. just to clean the air and, and optimize mm -hmm. the heating system. And mm -hmm. This is very interesting because, I mean, it has been also like a transition understanding who's your right client. When I go back to the times of Plantagon, for example, I see that Plantagon was trying to sell its farms to cities and public authorities. Like you should think like food security at the national level and try to feed your cities, which was totally wrong. A city is not responsible. Maybe they care. Maybe they could provide the platform. But a mayor is not responsible for your nutritious food in your table. They could have policies to create less food deserts, for example, but they never go on that deeper level. The ones who bring food to your plate, those are basically our real customers. So uh, in the beginning, we were thinking it might be interesting for real estate owners. But then we realized, okay, they might look at it, but not as a function for producing food, only as you mentioned, for purification of their air, maybe lowering down carbon footprint. But then still, somebody should be there as an entrepreneur or a company and take care of the plants. And we didn't want to be that actor ourselves to become like the both the tech provider and the farming company. That idea became a bit like less valid for us over time. But that was already like a year and a half ago that we thought like, no, let's. And I guess that was the time that you've been in the farm. So that idea became a bit less valid for us. And the idea became like, okay, our customers, the core customers could be the retailers, food stores, restaurants, and maybe like shopping malls. And what about schools or uh, hospitals? There is the whole public sector mm -hmm. um, providing food to our kids or our elderly. Mm -hmm. Is that a market for you? Abs I mean, it could be, absolutely. The thing is like that. There are a bit of like regulations that could be the hinders for that sector to directly like talk to us and buy that as a service from us because we don't want to sell food. We want to sell the service. If they come to us and say, okay, we have this many kids and they need this much salad and we need this much herbs and so on, we could produce it for them. But this is not a model that works for them. So it's a bit of a gap of policy still there. But if you have an entrepreneur, and this is something that we're discussing in a research project, for example, with, uh, with a project on, um, on shared economy, with some researchers that are working in a, in a project called Sharing City Sweden, that, for example, if you could do the same thing with local housing associations, but you need to always have an entrepreneur who could like subscribe to our service. So we become like the tech provider and the service provider, and they find a relevant business model for that. And they're like super interesting, different business models that you could do because the margins that the entrepreneur gets makes it a very good business. So let's talk about that. The prices and food is very cheap. 
That's mm-hmm. one of the problem, I think, of yeah. our food system. We don't pay the real price of food no. because of the externalities that you were mentioning in, in your introduction. So how do you make it viable, considering the competition you're fighting with? If I go back to a question that you just said, I mean, one very interesting thing was that, yes, the resources that are hidden in the produce, we never pay for them. Water, the pollution that is created, the minerals that is put into that, the fertility of soil and so on and so forth is not added to the value. You either think like I have a piece of land, how much like things I apply in it and how much of work it is. And then you have a price. You never account for your ecosystem services. But based on a very valid business offer that we have, when you talk about food, there is always like in between 8 to 12 different middle hand actors between your farmer and your food. So when you buy an avocado, there has been 10 other actors at minimum between you and the farmer that farmed it. A whole buyer, like a, like a grossist, and then you bring it like to the next layers, like the processors, packaging company, the exporting company, importing company, the whole buyers, the retailers, blah, blah, blah. So there are like so many different actors. And for processed food, that's even like more. So you have like at least four or five other actors in between. So by cutting all of those actors from this competition, even if like you have an infrastructure and technology cost, our offer could be still matched by those less of quality and taste and nutrition value and freshness produced in a supermarket. So you could offer the same price, but you have less actors to be included. So in our case, it's only us and the retailer and the end consumer. Vertical farming for least developed countries. Mm-hmm. Is that a relevant option? Or you were mentioning low tech yeah. as well. So what you're thinking? Anna? The thing is like that. Sometimes, I mean, naively, we think like everything that is applicable in a less developed country should be low tech. I think this is irrelevant. Like affordability of technology is the thing that we need to focus on. Just think about like the smartphones that we are using. Are they like less advanced smartphones that are used in the developing countries or no they're like the same iphones that we're using for example so it's only creation of a technology in an affordability level that you provide it to a broader spectrum of people with cheaper prices think about any different technology that is introduced in the beginning it's available for less people But then in 10 years, 15 years, all of those technologies become more available. Think of drones that you buy your children now. 20 years ago, that was a super advanced machine that was only used in military and defense industry purposes. Like we could focus on low tech. And of course, you could stack vertical layers on top of each other and use it in different systems. But vertical farming in a controlled environment is way more valid than only doing the farming vertically. And for that, you need technology. It's definitely doable. I mean, to focus on more controlled environment systems for the low-income countries as well. But which continents are the most like food-producing continents of the world? Africa and South America. And if you like match it with like, where do we have the most hungry countries? It's Africa. Indian Peninsula, and South Africa. 
because all of that food is exported from those countries by the bigger corporates with cheap prices for the high-income countries. So when you look at the hunger map, we are totally like green here in Sweden. We are totally green in Europe. But the amount of food that we import is the issue. But I mean, that's going to be also subject to change. And there are many different global trade rules. When you sell technology, when you sell consumer products, when you sell cars, when you sell, you need to buy something back. And usually like food is one of those options. Minerals, natural resources, timber. These are those values that I told you about that we need to like reinvent in our head. Okay, I have technology. I sell it. Why should I buy minerals? Thank you. So you buy something that is raw and cheaper. You create something with it, sell it like 100 times more expensive back to them. But this is going to be broken, I guess, in the near future, because you start like putting value on your natural resources in a greater sense as our mentality matures up. And I hope that phase comes sooner than later, because the global gap that we have between these developed and non-developed countries is totally unacceptable, because the amount of resources that is available for 3% of the global population is equal to the 97% the, of the other. Of course, you have a non-functional system and an unequal system. How much this gap is going to grow? I mean, 27 people have an equal wealth equal to 4.5 billion people. So all of these different things, they need to change. They come with value change, basically. I mean, now we are going outside. We're going to the space. We're thinking like minerals in the space. That's what's driving like a space industry like crazy. The amount of investment that is attracted to the space industry is not because the space is amazing to be in. The selling point for the, that industry is like, do you know how much different rare minerals we could take from the space? Satellite hunting is one part of that. But being on other planets and do mining there for the rare like metals that we don't have on this planet is the sense. It's like the economy driving a futuristic industry. For that, I'm super happy because we're going like to the other planets. But the value for that... It's very interesting. We don't talk about exploring this space. We're talking about colonizing this space. This is like a mindset problem that we have. We're using technology just to... We're not changing the mindsets. The example that you mentioned on colonizing space is the same with the global warming and the fact that the Arctic now is a place where we're able to do mining. So we keep on accelerating with the same mindset. I don't see the mindset shift happening but the evil is not the technology the evil is our head so technology is only a tool i mean you could have like tech for good so if we change the mindset the technology is not evil so if we apply that to the concrete example that we were mentioning just before with least developed countries and apply this uh, vertical farming intelligence to avoid reproducing this system of keeping the value in the north and just taking the resource from the south. I guess like one one part of that is if we start producing food in our own cities, we want we we're going to be less dependent on the imported food. That's interesting in itself. Then we don't need to import the cheap food from the other places because we're producing that with our own resources here. And then you should talk about should we also think about a transition in their own systems? Of course, 
for that. If the European politicians want to think about how do we export technology, not produce, they need to make it possible for us to build a channel. So these are the policy things that needs to be changed for smaller companies to think about their markets. Because anyways, as a startup, you think, how can I survive to begin with? How do I get investment? How do I make money to become a scale-up? So whichever startup that you go and talk to today, do you have an international plan? Yes, we do. What's your market? Yeah, it's going to be like the big European capitals, American capitals. It's going to be the Far East cities in China and Hong Kong and Singapore and Dubai. And nobody says uh, my prime market is going to be in Lima or in Dar es Salaam or like a city like that. But if you create those channels of saying we make technology available also for the other parts of the world because we want to help them in this transition against the climate change. Then we have a solution. How do you think we can break the circle? These are high-level decisions that needs to be made on policy level, but because policy are owned by industry, I guess this is the mission for those 27 people who have an equal net worth to almost 5 billion people on this planet. This is the job for those people to understand that power and that amount of like influence on the economical markets of the world comes with a responsibility. Stand up for that responsibility. Mm. Can they? The person symbolizes that is Bill Gates. Yeah. He's got the biggest philanthropic foundation on mm-hmm. earth. I think it's twice the budget of the World Health Organization. Mm-hmm. And he wants to do good. But the thing is, he's been programmed and and his wealth is built on all those values he believes in it and his only way to do good is by continuing to feed the beast when you go deep down into the gates foundation system you see that it's it's feeding their economic interest as well because they're all married with monsanto and their way of helping the south is by providing them with fertilizer and seed so reproducing the system again like colonizing no this is a very difficult question we're still not there and i'm not sure what you could say more than you know putting a finger on the issues i mean i've been a strategic advisor for one of the task forces of the united nations and i should tell you like those big organizations it's really difficult to work within them and get results okay so you're a futurist (laughs) So how do you imagine the world in 20, 30 years time? I hope for a better mindset because the next 20, 30 years are quite important for us to get rid of the issue with climate change. And I think our software, as I mentioned, I see human civilization as a software, is waiting for this big digit change going from version 9 point something something to 10 point something something soon. I mean, you see a lot of changes in people and their development, like during the the COVID times. I mean, so many people started to focus on a self-development journey. And this is something that we should maybe even do that on a collective level, a self-development journey for our, for our kind, for our race, for whatever that you call that, for human beings. If we take two words to describe our existing mindset, Mm -hmm. maybe profit and materialism, And if you had to pick two words for the next phase? Maybe a win-win. Win-win? Yeah. Instead of a win-lose. Because our system is basically like based on a win-lose. 
If you lose, I win. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Do you have a quote or a book you'd like to share? There are two quotes, I guess. One of them says, the future is not something we enter, something that we invent. Or I say, like, don't wait for the future to be shaped. Build the future that you want. Decide what kind of future we want and let's build it. And if you want to read like books on futurism, I guess a good book to get some sort of like insight to our change of the world, Metamorphosis of the World by uh, Dr. Beck is a good, Oldish Beck is a, is a good book. Abundance by Peter Diamantis and Steve Cutler is a good book. And then there is another book which is called Vision 3.0. So yeah. Thanks a lot for this great conversation. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. If you like this episode, please put some stars on your podcast app, share it on your favorite social media, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and send me a message with a comment or an idea for our next guest.